9 a.m. is good. I haven't been distracted with anything else yet, and I had two cups of coffee. You get it. You, I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, fill the rest of that for you. And that's the interview. All right. Thank you very much. Hey, Slob Connection listeners. The ACs of recordings roll on. And for this episode, I was incredibly lucky to sit down with Emily Joan Elliott. She's the Associate Director for Research and Publications at HNET. On top of that, she has also definitely worked in academia. And we got to talk a little bit about Soviet socialism and temporary labor migration, temporary labor workers. Absolutely phenomenal conversation. So sit down and take a listen to this one. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. We always just like to start with, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. What brought you into this this field? It's actually a very funny reason how I wound up in the field. When I, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City, and occasionally if a movie premiere did not sell out, the Daily News would give away free tickets. And my dad saw it, and he got us tickets as a family to go see the animated film Anastasia. And I absolutely loved it. And after like a week or two of obsessing over the film, my mom just looked at me and she's like, well, you know, that's not the real ending. They, you know, shot her and her family in the head and then threw their bodies in a vat of acid. And then they buried them somewhere in Siberia. And I was seven. It's <laughs> a harsh reality check. So I'm actually now when I tell this story, surprised that I stuck with my interest in Russian history. I was also super interested in space travel and wanted to become an astronaut. So I learned a lot about the space race from my dad. Luckily, there were less traumatic stories on that front. So maybe that's how I wound up with Soviet and not imperial history. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you're working at HNET, which is, I'm pulling up your title, Associate Director for Research and Publications. So what is the HNET and what do you, what do, you do there? Sure. So HNET has been around since, I believe, December 1992. So really 1993 is kind of our anniversary. It started as an email listserv, and there were a handful. So you'll see it'll be like H-LATAM for Latin American Studies. And we have H-Russia is one of the older ones, but we have H-Ukraine, H-Poland, H-Romania, naming the ones that would be relevant for your listeners, but we have many more. In the 2000, I believe 2010s, we moved to the HNET Commons, so we're capable of hosting digital humanities projects. I know one network is coming up with an interactive map, so you could see where different online archives are available for their research. We do book reviews. We've done almost 50,000 since 1993. We're primarily a place for scholars to communicate with each other. We started publishing an open access journal. We're growing that program. We actually have each podcast as a network that tries to get scholarly and academic podcasts out there. We'd love to see it. Yes, we're excited. We hope to index you guys on there so people in the Slavic studies field can find your podcast. And what is your role in research and publications? Sure. So I would say at HNET, we have our executive director who is the face of the organization and does the business and the finance. I have a colleague who's the associate director of networks. So as I said, we have these networks. She helps with onboarding those editors. How are things moderated? The DH projects. 
With research and publications, I oversee the reviews program. I oversee the journals. I also oversee the book channel, which I hope is a service your listeners know about. It puts out announcements of new book titles. We import them from a scholarly publishing catalog. People will also submit their own titles. So recently published scholars, please go to the book channel on HNET and submit your title and we'll put it out there. And tied into the book channel, we also have a blog series called Feeding the Elephant, which is about scholarly publishing and communications. We hope to bring together scholars, publishers, and librarians. Mm -hmm. The scholars and publishers has been a bit easier for us, I think, by nature of who's involved with the project. So we're working very hard to get librarians on board. So if any librarians are listening, we'd love to hear your experiences in scholarly communications. And HNET in general is very big on open access. Everything is published under a Creative Commons license. The owner retains the rights but it can be shared and cross-posted elsewhere on the internet. It just cannot be adapted and credit has to be given to the author. I mean, that's amazing, With, especially in academia when there's so many closed doors and obstacles that you have to jump over sometimes to get access to information, to have such a plethora of like wealth no of knowledge is invaluable. Yeah, I'm really proud of the work HNET has done. I can't take credit for it. It's predated me. I only began this position in May 2022, but I know with open access, in a lot of cases, the cost of publishing, because publishing is never going to be free. There's people involved, there's platforms involved, there's the author processing charges. And so you have that. And that's difficult for scholars who are contingent faculty or from the developing world, where at HNET, we generate revenue through the job guide and donations from our supporters. And then we use that so our journals and our book reviews are free to both the user and the authors. I mean, that all sounds wonderful. We definitely wanted to take a moment on the episode to kind of underline what HNET is, because despite, you know, having such an established presence and being around for so long, it, it's not known by everyone. So kind of getting the word out seemed very important to start this episode with. Well, we're very appreciative. And if you're interested, please go to networks.hnet.org. And at the top, you can see all networks and you could find the relevant networks. And if you're not in Slavic studies, we have plenty of other networks as well. We have geographic specific ones and also thematic specific ones. So we have each socialisms, for example, too, might be of interest to your listeners. Something for everyone. Yes. Well, you are presenting a paper this weekend, uh, Little Deals and Grand Bargains, Migration to Moscow and Soviet Bureaucracy with a Human Face. So could you tell us a little bit about this paper? What got you interested in, in writing about this? Sure. So my dissertation was on temporary labor migration to Moscow from other parts of the Soviet Union from 1971 to 2002. And I promise those were not randomly selected <laughs> dates. 71 was the start of a new five-year plan and 2002 had to do with a significant change in Soviet migration law. So broadly, my dissertation looked at a group of labor migrants known as Limichiki. They came to Moscow on a temporary basis, but they had, so I should say in the Soviet Union, big cities like Moscow, Leningrad, even a place like Volgograd, 
you would probably need a registration known as a propiska to live there. It tied back to the collectivization and the famine and people moving between countryside and city and the Soviet authorities wanting to regulate it. They didn't want cities to become too big and become capitalist slums. And I'm using scare quotes, your listeners can't say. That didn't, it didn't stem the tide of people moving to the city, but it gave them a secure pathway to integrate into the city in the 70s. So they would come, they'd live in a dormitory, they'd have temporary rights to live in the city. And each enterprise and factory was different. Some you could work there for four years and get permanent residency and get on the queue for an apartment. Others, it was 10 years. Someone you signed a contract, you were promised an apartment in two years. It really depended. So in the 70s, there was a lot of focus on the cultural development of these migrants in the dormitories. And by the 80s, that kind of falls by the wayside. And the paper I'll be presenting later today at ACES looks at petitions people wrote to the Priomnaya of the Supreme Soviet, which translates roughly to the reception desk. Mm -hmm. But think of this, and I sometimes wish I had a Priomnaya to go to. You have an issue with the bureaucracy. And it's terrible. Like, you don't know who to go to. I just think of like nowadays when you're on phones and it's like, press one. And then you just wind up screaming, like, please let me speak to someone. The Priomnaya was the someone you could speak to. They'd help you cut through the red tape. So the petitions I looked at showed on the one hand, people weren't having their basic material needs met. Their housing conditions were lackluster. They were promised an apartment. They didn't get it. On the other hand, what was equally as interesting, or perhaps more interesting, was how the Soviet officials responded. You had people who were squatting in apartments. It it was my turn in the queue. You didn't give me an apartment. So I'm here. And they'd write to the pre-omni and say, yeah, I'm squatting in this apartment. My boss, like the people in charge of housing are being jerks. Can you give me the propiska to live here? And they almost always did. And I contend that this is even though the Soviet command's economy wasn't delivering on material well-being the way it promised or wanted to, Soviet officials did care about supporting the most vulnerable, was an important part of how they viewed their work. I mean, it's just interesting because there were you go you go into a lot of different examples of what kind of petitions people submitted, and some of them are very straightforward. Like, yeah, like our roof is, is needs to be fixed, and they come and they fix it. Some, like you mentioned, are are a little bit more unorthodox. But one that stands out in particular is a woman got let go from a job. She got pregnant, and she wanted that job back, but she ended up getting an entirely different job, which is a little unexpected. You would think like that they would try to fight with the the supervisor that let her go, but they just sort of said, you know what, let's just, let's just put you somewhere else. Yeah, there were a few things that jumped out at me with that story. And one of them was for it being 1980, that there was recognition that you're discriminated against as a woman when you're pregnant, that there was no, oh, are you sure that they're firing you because you're pregnant and on a temporary propiska? Like, yeah, you're right. That's what they're doing. (laughs) And it wasn't clear to me what the woman wanted. It seems like she probably wanted to return to her work at MGU, Moscow State University. But then he got her a job at the Academy of Sciences. And of course, there's things behind the scenes that we don't always see in letters. Like, did he have a friend there who he could call up and get her a job? 
So it's again, like that tension of recognition of this is a problem, but they didn't go head to head and say, well, MGAU, you need to really take this woman. This is discriminatory. But at the end of the day, she did find stable employment. And, and some of the other solutions were also just, yeah, like surprising, like giving people leave to squat effectively. Yeah. You know, the Priyomna would like the way you described it would go out of their way to, you know, contribute to the collective in a way, even if it wasn't always the proper way to do it. Like it would be these sort of gray areas. Was that surprising to you as well? Very much so. I didn't anticipate people would be thrown in prison or face serious repercussions. I did think that if you violated it, it's possible that your, whether it was temporary or permanent, propiska would be terminated and you'd have to return home to where you were from is what I anticipated. So I was surprised when I found this out. One of the few cases of someone getting sent back home was actually in the 70s. And this wasn't a petition to the pre-omni. It had to deal with different organizations in the dormitory supporting migrants. And this one person missed three months of work and never showed up to their disciplinary hearing. So that one, I, I think there were efforts to try to help this person, but they didn't work out. And that's really the only one that sticks out. But I would say on the flip side, it is known that for the preparation of the 1980 Olympics, many migrants, particularly ones who didn't you know, typically appear Slavic, they might have appeared to be Central Asian or Caucasian, were pushed out of the city in preparation for the Olympics. And it should be underlined that these were like labor workers. So they were doing work that a lot of other people didn't want to do. So construction and all, you know, the hard labor that is involved with that. Yeah. And that's, I can kind of bring us forward in my dissertation too, of a lot of those migrants who were coming to do the physically demanding, quote, dirty labor, initially were Russians from the countryside surrounding Moscow. And pretty much Moscow bled the countryside surrounding it dry. So then you have migrants from further afield come and they sometimes are ethnic Russians from other parts of the RSFSR, Ukrainians, Belarusians. But by the late 80s, and then in the post-Soviet period, you do have Caucasian and Central Asian migrants. And Jeff Sadeo, who's written about the Limichiki as well, has focused very much so on their stories. And I'd recommend his research for anyone interested. But in that late, 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 late Soviet, like the final hour, so to speak, and the post-Soviet period, you have this kind of association of physically demanding, quote, dirty labor and non-Slavic migrants. And then you get into some of the stereotypes that you might be more familiar with today in Russia. I mean, we not to draw like just a, a loose comparison, but we see that in the US too, when you have migrants coming from, from Mexico and from other, from South America to fulfill these, what is seen as labor heavy, education low kind of jobs, because again, nobody wants them, but it does also open up these stereotypes. So it's certainly a relatable situation. Oh yeah, it happens the world over. And not that we should put too much stock in memes, but something to your point about migrants, I've People don't want to do certain jobs, but then when migrants come and do it, they're accused of stealing the job that nobody wanted. 
And I saw a meme once that referred to migrants as Schrodinger's migrant, where, where the cat is simultaneously alive and dead, where the migrant is simultaneously not working and draining the system, scare quotes, but also stealing your job. So people will always use these stereotypes to fight back. And it's not always economic motive. There's other things like racism or prejudice tied up in it. Well, kind of bring it back to, you know, the areas of the Soviet Union. What was the role of the government in that? Because in your dissertation as well, you kind of get into how they were, you know, trying to control this like temporary labor migration. What was their role in that, especially at like the height of when all of these Lumichki were moving into Moscow and St. Petersburg? It played a very big role. So you have like the state planning committee and they'll work with various ministries of Okay, the Ministry of Railways, who I mentioned in my paper, is going to need, you know, a million workers. And in Moscow, they need 50,000. In Leningrad, they need 50,000. In a smaller town someplace else, they need 10,000. And they begin to break it down. They try to look at how many students will be graduating that they could hire. How many women who had been staying home with children can they bring back into the workforce? How many pensioners could work part-time. Once you hit a certain age in the Soviet Union, you were not employed full-time. You received a pension, but you were able to work part-time. They do those calculations and they say, well, we're short 700 people at this factory or at this railway station. We're going to have to hire outside workers. So there was a lot of planning of how many workers. In practice, Maybe more so in the late 40s, 50s, early 60s, you would have officials go out into the villages and the countryside and say, who wants to go to Moscow? But then people knew if you went to Moscow, there was work. So a lot of times they came on their own and there would be posters in the train station, for example, saying like, go to the office here and they'll hook you up with a job. So that's a lot of people wound up coming on their own. So there was less government oversight in that regard. The Soviet officials definitely thought that if they had more control over the system, they would choose better migrants or perhaps match them better because maybe people took the first job just to get their temporary propiska and get started on the housing queue and then they didn't like it or it wasn't, there was workplace conflict. So I think they wanted more control, but it also saved them work and money when people took their own initiative. And were they helpful with, you know, these Limichki, like they were promised, you know, this idea of you, you can stay in Moscow, this is like now a stable life for you. Did that actually materialize? I think particularly like my dissertation starting in 71, I did meet some migrants in, from that period and do oral histories with them. That's not, my dissertation is primarily archival. But I would say more times than not, those who chose to remain seemed to achieve the dream. Many people did go back home. Yeah. Maybe they lived in the dormitory longer than they wanted, but it seemed to be if you married and had a kid and you were in the dormitory, then you would often, you were doing what you were supposed to do. You were contributing to building socialism. You Moscow had a terribly low birth rate. So you were having a child. This was all things the Soviet government wanted you to do and you were rewarded for it. But then, you know, as more migrants come because they need people in the factories and they want the good life, 
Well, then you have to build apartments for them. So then that's another wave of Lemichiki you need. And then I would say by the 80s, it becomes more and more difficult for people to achieve that, although many do. It's a whole host of factors. There was just simply not enough people coming to Moscow based on the demand. So it was having to rethink and reconceptualize where to recruit migrants from. I think some of it is the broader. I tend to move away from the term stagnation and focus on the stability of the Brezhnev period. But Soviet officials realized that migration wasn't going to be a cure-all. And they were looking at other ways to improve labor discipline and labor output. So I think a focus was put on that and policing migrants a bit more than giving them the good life is where the focus switched. I would say, though, when it came to discipline, it was often factory and enterprise leaders who bore the brunt of reprimands when things weren't going well. I know like one dormitory in the 80s had, I believe it was like 30 or 50 unregistered migrants. And the migrants didn't get in trouble. It was the commandant of the dormitory for dropping the ball. Wow. You would think it would go the other way. Yes, exactly. Because that's, you know, we're in the United States and it usually maybe the big corporations that hire undocumented or people without proper papers, they might pay fines. But we, I think, have more of an image of people being deported by ICE. Well, I, I kind of did want to also just connect, you touched on it briefly, connecting the Soviet era to post-Soviet era where there was such a big backlash against migrants. And, you know, we did touch on the escalation of, of racism and stereotypes, but eventually, you know, foreign like temporary labor migrants were deemed a national security risk. And that was just in essence, like shut down. So what are your thoughts on that, that sort of like shift to something that was so necessary at a time like we needed those migrants to something now where it's it's a threat yeah i think we need to talk about peter and Glasnost. so you have boris yeltsin who will later become president of the russian federation how does he wind up in moscow he's not from there he's from yekaterinburg so he gorbachev kind of brings him into the fold as a young enthusiastic dynamic person and he becomes the mayor of moscow and he really focuses on the exploitation of Lumichiki by factory owners. And I think, you know, as I said, we see some of this, the, the decreasing likelihood of getting the good life. And Yeltsin's like, no one's getting the, the good life who are Lumichiki. They're exploited. These are 20th century slaves. Like he has some very strong language about it. And as part of the five-year plan, He's like, we're no longer doing Lemichiki in Moscow. And this tied into some of Gorbachev's plans for restructuring the economy and how they will balance things out in terms of input, output, demand, supply, all that fun stuff. And pretty much, I believe by the end of the year, they go back to taking Lemichiki. It, it didn't work out. The economy was so dependent on it. And that's if you think of the United States too, you can decrease pathways for legal immigration, but people are still going to come because there's push factors from where they're leaving. And there is also pull factors. There are certain sectors of the American economy that are dependent on undocumented laborers, and it gives the employer the opportunity to exploit them. 
something similar happens in Russia, you have economic chaos Mm -hmm. that I don't think, at least for my generation, I'm a millennial. We did go through economic hardship in my generation, but we can't, I don't think really fathom what people went through in 92, 93 in Russia. It was easily the worst of times. So there were Russians taking on work that I think they would have considered beneath them a few years before. But there wasn't enough. And how are we getting goods? Certain things like fruits and vegetables, people are growing that in the Caucasus and Central Asia, bringing it up because money didn't abound. People were struggling. There were accusations of migrants jacking up the prices. There was violence toward migrants. And actually, another one of my advisors, advisees, her dissertation focused on something else, but she wrote a paper about kind of a published article, I should say, why did Russians glom on to like this Western European and particularly US like binary of like black migrants who we need to ostracize and like this like race existed in the Soviet Union, but like it became very binary in the post-Soviet period. I would say one of the reasons they move, meaning the government of the Russian Federation to make migration illegal They wanted to stop the flow of refugees from other parts of the former Soviet Union, because if you're a refugee, you're entitled to certain material support. And the other is in terms of labor migration, if you don't have your papers in order, the Russian Federation was fining the businesses to the tune of billions of rubles. So I think it also helped their coffers one of many reasons. I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. Just that that development of you, you need to understand the history of what kind of came before to understand the mindset now. Right. And it's there's been changes to migration law in Russia since 2002. It's, no, I'm in history, so we can't go. My epilogue goes up to the present day and I discuss uh, preparations for the World Cup. And there were I don't recall the exact number of labor migrants who died building some of the facilities, but it wasn't insignificant, although it was significantly less than the number who died preparing for the World Cup in Qatar. So, yeah, we examine history, but so much of it continues on yes. even into the <laughs> contemporary. And it's, it's why looking back is sometimes so important. This is such a fascinating facet of history that you you really delved so deep into. Are you planning on kind of exploring that a little bit more in the future, or do you think you might like pivot to another topic? Yeah, so as I said, I took a break from academia, and I think it helped me for the better being in journalism. I learned different questions to ask and probably to be a more efficient writer. So I have that to hopefully, I do ultimately want to turn this into a book. I'm also co-editing a volume with James Neely, and it focuses on like the new wave of study of labor history and work history, because that had been kind of put by the wayside in the field. And something that has fascinated me, and this might be another project, is looking at the 1980 Olympics. And I am someone who enjoyed work watching the Olympics, but we've seen all the controversies the last few rounds along the lines of what I said with the World Cup. How are people treated? 
I want to study the afterlives of the two Olympic villages for the 1980 Olympics. We think of the 80 Olympics because the United States under Jimmy Carter boycotted it. What's interesting though is the Soviet Olympic Village became a huge housing complex and they were really nice apartments. Like in Russia today, a lot of times you have freestanding wardrobes for your closet. These had the like what I think of as like American closets where they're built into the wall, electric stoves where gas is the norm. Although plenty of houses in the United States have gas stoves too. And the United States though, I don't, many people don't know what happened to the Lake Placid Olympic Village. It became a federal corrections facility. And what is super interesting is the Soviet newspapers were like, are we not gonna talk about this? If we did this, the rest of the world would sure have a lot to say, but America just gets to do this. And I believe his name is Vladislav Tretyak. He was on the 1980 Olympic team. And anytime, he still announces the hockey games in Russia for the Olympics. And every time I'll be like, well, nothing is as bad as Lake Placid. Like it was like living in the gulag. And I will leave it there because we could do a whole nother episode about what was going on in the United States about why they saw that as like a good solution. But I, I think if you stop the average American in the street, they would say the Soviets made it into a prison and the Americans made it into affordable housing. And that's not what happened. So I want to get into what was going on in both countries that this happened. I mean, that also sounds fascinating. And also even like looking at Sochi and all the fallout after that of realizing the quality of the housing they built there definitely opens up a lot of interesting discussions and about Olympics as a whole as well. So yeah, if you start writing that, we'd love to have you back. We love talking sports. I wanted to end the episode, actually. You mentioned that, you know, dabbling into journalism gave you a lot of insight. So many of our listeners are academics themselves. So could you, from the other side, give us any advice on what you've learned like that you can insert into academia now? Primarily get to the point quicker and analyzing what backstory you really need. You know, I wrote in a college town, a lot of our readers were academics and professors. So if the average reader will probably only read 800 words into a news story, Ours would read about 1,200. So they they were a bit more dedicated by nature of what they do for a living. But knowing I have to, like, you need background to understand this, but I have to, and we don't necessarily footnote in journalism, but we like hyperlink things. So like kind of what can I do that? And I think I had to more critically think about what interests people and why is this important? I mean, in theory, like we're a bunch of nerds here at ACs. I could talk about most things related to the field and people will find it mildly interesting. That's not the case with the news. And I also had to emphasize why things were important. Like I was our lead COVID-19 reporter. So like, why is it important that there's a racial disparity and who's being affected by COVID deaths? Like getting to that, why it matters. It made me think about it differently. I mean, that's good advice. Yeah. Get to get to the why a little bit faster. It's so hard. <laughs> it's like, I need to tell you the background story and the context first. Right. Which is what I enjoyed here today. Like I could kind of just go and give all the background, but like when I speak, you know, this evening, I have 15 minutes. Every word matters. So very much so. So we appreciate you taking it a little bit more time to come and chat with us. So thank you. It was really my pleasure. 
Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. That was, you are also a phenomenal interviewer because I've been on podcasts before. You really are perfect. Like, this was very conversational and you guys, it, this is the most enjoyable podcast I've ever done. Literally the highest compliment you could have ever paid. Also when you have the coolest shirt. Thank you. I literally got this specifically like because it just screams Soviet. Like, yeah. It's like Soviet.